Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to explore the boundaries of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Jenny Peruski from Harvard University. Today, I'm here to talk to Peter Gordon and Juan Jose Morales, the authors of Painter and Patron, The Maritime Silk Road in the Codice Casanatense, published by the abbreviated press in 2020. Peter Gordon is editor of the Asian Review of Books and publisher of Chameleon Press. He was also a founder of the Man Asian Hong Kong International Literary Festival. Juan Jose Morales is an entrepreneur and historian who has published a variety of works ranging from poetry anthologies to works on arts and culture. Their publication, Painter and Patron, takes an in-depth look at an illustrated manuscript known as the Codice Casanatense, which was produced in the 16th century in Goa and contains 76 watercolors. Morales and Gordon's study details the cultural context in which this object was produced, emphasizing the intense global connections taking root in Goa at this time. Turning now to our speakers, Peter and Juan, I'd like to welcome you to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about your book today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jenny. Can you maybe each start us off by saying a few words about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, or if you had any particularly influential mentors on your path? Well, uh, I was born in Madrid, Spain, and I love history since uh, since I was a child. I My father was also a, a keen historian, aficionado historian, and we have many books of history. Even from early age, I start to read serious books on history. For example, the, the accounts of the the Spaniards in in America, like uh, Cabeza de Vaca, uh, Toribio de Motolinia, or Bernal Díaz del Castillo. And in the end, I study law in Complutense University. It was the old University of Alcalá, and uh, it's a 13th century uh, university. And but I continue to study history in another uh, institution of high learning called La Rabida, led by some of the most important historians in Spain: uh, Vicente Rodríguez Casado, Luis Suárez Fernández, or Francisco Morales Padrón. And so we have uh, meetings and seminars of over a week uh, that took place in heritage places like uh, palaces, castles, monasteries. And really it was uh, a privilege for me to be in, in contact with these uh, professors. But it was not until... 25 years ago, uh, 95, uh, 1995, 1996, when I came to Hong Kong, that I start to know about the history of the Iberians in Asia uh, with the age of uh, uh, exploration and navigation spearheaded by the Portuguese and the Spanish and their presence in Asia. And it was actually in English, that I start to read about this experience, uh, thanks to uh, friends that I met here, uh, art historian uh, Cesar Guillén Núñez, actually he comes from the University of Pennsylvania, where he was also a professor, and Jonathan Watis, who is a very reputable dealer in maps, or antique maps of East Asia. I was a map collector myself, and I realized the maps of the 15th of the 16th and early 17th century. So most of the names were in Spanish. And there were, uh, although many of those maps were printed in, in Amsterdam, perhaps, uh, there, there have so many uh, Spanish names and Portuguese names. And then they uh, introduced me to a great historian called uh, British historian Charles Boxer, or C.R. Boxer, 
and he was the great historian of the Portuguese in Asia. Although the first book that uh, I was given was South China in the 16th century with accounts of Mendoza, uh, one of the most important accounts of, of China written by, by the Spaniard Juan González de Mendoza. Uh, C.R. Boxer is for me a mentor. He passed away, but he was also a very colorful figure. He was uh, in the, an officer of the British Army. He was an spy for the British. He was uh, a prisoner in a concentration camp of the Japanese in Hong Kong. Uh, he had also a very famous uh, love affair with Emily Han, the, the famous writer. And uh, well, he finally became a professor in London University uh, of Portuguese Studies. And not only he was a great uh, scholar, a great researcher, but he wrote beautifully, eloquently, and he has a very good judgment. Uh, later on, I will tell more anecdotes about C.R. Boxer because it will be relevant to our talk. I, uh, my background is completely different. I'm from Massachusetts and um, uh, went to Harvard, as a matter of fact, and I actually did mathematics and linguistics. Uh, and I ended up in tech for a good 30-odd years, but there was always a cultural element to it because a lot of the work was doing making computers work in languages like Arabic and Thai. Uh, and from all of that, um, I moved into setting up uh, an e-commerce firm in Hong Kong, which had to do with books. That led to setting up the Asian Review of Books, which is a, as the name implies, a book review publication. And that led into some of these other activities where I met Juan. And, and as you mentioned, we've done a few uh, volumes of poetry together and then moved into some of these other projects. Well, it's fascinating to hear about your very diverse backgrounds, especially working in relation to literature and language development. I think maybe moving into your book, my understanding, and you've explained a little bit of this as well, is that you've worked together previously on um, poetry anthologies, as well as co-authoring the book, The Silver Way, China, Spanish mm -hmm. America, and the Birth of Globalization, 1565 to 1815. Can you tell us a little bit about your history of working together and how the idea for painter and patron developed? Sure. Uh, you know, Juan and I uh, have known each other for quite a few years now, and we first started doing cultural things together. Hong Kong's a, a kind of an interesting place. It's a big city, but in some ways it's really very small. Uh, and so it's possible to do things here that might be difficult in a much larger place. So we did a few volumes of poetry uh, with uh, Asian poets based upon uh, uh uh, Cervantes and Octavio Paz. And then Juan also reviewed for me at the Asian Review of Books. And as he said, he focused on uh, books about the early uh, European presence in Asia. Uh, and in particular, there were a few books about the Manila Galleon. And the Manila Galleon was this annual trading ship that went between Manila and Acapulco every year for 250 years. And as he was Reviewing some of these, this was when President Xi Jinping announced uh, the new, what was then called the New Silk Road. Uh, and one morning I realized that the Manila Galleon wasn't the Silk Road, but a Silver Road going in the other direction. So I very quickly uh, wrote, wrote off a paper about this, uh, again related to the present day. And then Juan and I, uh, when we needed to turn it into a history, did, a, did this small book for Penguin. So that was the first book. Uh, this book started because the, uh, the actual album, the Codice Casanatense, sits in a, in a library in Rome. It's been there since 1700. And the Italian diplomatic missions here were interested in trying to bring the document out to Asia to show it, where it's really very little known, if known at all. And so this book was conceived as a first step in uh, making the work better known here. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the watercolors themselves, they're really very nice. They're very appealing. They're very human. Uh, they're not at all formal. Uh, the figures themselves uh, are often smiling. They have a twinkle in their eye. 
Uh, and when there's a couple, a man and woman together, which is one of the most common formats, you can, they tend to, the man and the woman look at each other, which looks like real affection. They look like real people. But this sort of aesthetic appeal aside, the geographical spread of the painting, something we'll talk about, uh, pretty much maps onto what we now call the Maritime Silk Road, which is a term that appears all the time in newspapers out here. So that was really our hook for an Asian-based treatment uh, of this document. And what was the research and writing process for this book, particularly working together on it? How did you decide who would write which parts? Well, bet between us, as you may have noticed, Juan is the historian. Uh, and uh, I do a lot of writing, uh, particularly for the newspapers. Uh, and so that was really the division of labor. Um, another division is that Juan knows all the books, ancient and modern. Uh, that have been written on all these various subjects. And one of the things I'm good at, though, is finding things hidden in the corners of the internet. So if you like, that was, that was really the division of labor. Um, Juan would set general outlines of, of, of what the history was. I would try to fill in the blanks and connect the dots and uh, do that sort of research uh, and uh, kind of construct the narrative. And then Juan would ensure that it was all historically uh, proper. Well, I, I may add that uh, it has also a very entertaining part. So the great breakthroughs uh, happen through lunches, uh, coffees, or drinks that is not only uh, very entertaining, but very productive. Yeah, this process of, of writing a book together um, has been... Um, as Juan says, very productive. We don't agree about everything. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the need, most of what you might call the breakthroughs come from trying to reconciling these two different opinions about what we're looking at and what we think is going on. Uh, and so the need to um, find common ground is often where the uh, sort of the, when we figure out what's really going on. So it's, I guess it's like being peer, constant peer review all the time. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And how how do you see this as developing on or departing from your previous work? Well, it has uh, many things uh, to do because um, with the Silver Way, so the book about the Manila Galleon or the silver trade uh, between Spanish America and China, that was... Uh, the first chapter of the monetary history and the great chapter of the history of trade and globalization. And it has in common with the, uh, the, the current book, uh, Painter and Patron, about this codice in, in Goa, that is about the Iberian powers. So they are uh, countries that they are neighbors and they have so much in common, but they have been living also back to back. And so we are talking about the same period in both books, uh, 16th century, two partners that they have many, many things in common, uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese, and their histories have been interacting uh, for millennia. And there are chapters very little known. So the silver trade is very important as the foundation of the, of the a global world, but it's very little known. Adam Smith wrote about it, but it has been forgotten, and particularly in the English-speaking world. In the same way, uh, painter and patron, uh, patron about uh, this cottage in Goa, uh, the presence of the Portuguese in Asia, they were the first Western power to come to Asia and to stay. Also, it is completely unknown. It has this cottage has very little attention uh, by the academia, uh, but actually not really uh, exploring or not getting uh, to the heart of, of, of the matter or of the secrets that this college has and that I think they are important to, to share. So uh, there, are, there are a lot of parallels and uh, some even sources could be similar as well. Fascinating. Well, let's turn now to your 
book, your text is divided into five chapters entitled Paper, Patron, People, Painter, and Postscript, each of which considers a different aspect of the illustrated manuscript, namely its production, who it was made for, who it was made by, and what is illustrated within. Together, these chapters offer an intimate look at daily life in Goa within various ethnic and socioeconomic groups. Beginning with your introduction, you offer the reader a broad overview of the Codice Kesena Tenze manuscript, including a brief history of the time and place in which it was produced. Can you tell listeners how people were living and interacting in mid-16th century Goa? Sure. Goa in the 16th century was was the place to be. Uh, It was known as Goa Durada, or Golden Goa. Uh, And there was a proverb at the time that went, uh, he who's seen Goa need not see Lisbon. So it was a metropolis. Uh, It was a trading center, uh, very, very cosmopolitan, uh, a uh, Portuguese, uh, a Dutch, a Dutchman who was who was an aide to the Portuguese Archbishop uh, in the 1580s, uh, we'll, we'll come back to him, Jan Huygen van Leekshoten, wrote about it, and he describes the the main um, market street as being a place where there were all kinds of spices and dried drugs, sweet gums, and such things, fine and costly coverlets, and many curious things out of out of Gujarat, the Sindh, Bengal, and China. There were Indian merchants on another street that were selling all kinds of silks, satins, damasks, and curious works of porcelain from China and other places. So it was a a place of trade. It was a place where people from all around the Indian Ocean came together and met, uh, and it was under uh, Portuguese rule at the time. So it was a mixing place of cultures and commerce and peoples. How would you say Portuguese intervention shaped these interactions? I, uh, can you repeat the question? Uh, Portuguese intervention was a an important facet of interaction, as you discuss uh, throughout your book. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Portuguese intervention, Portuguese, I hesitate to say colonialism, is kind of, is shaping yeah. these interactions? Yes. Well, we have um, when Vasco de Gama one of the Portuguese explorers first arrived in in Calicut in the south west, west western coast, uh, coast of uh, of India this was in in 1498 it was a momentum momentous event in 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 the world's history so here the portuguese the europeans came to stay it is significant that when their first men of uh, Vasco de Gama, of, uh, of, they landed in Calicut, they were confronted by two Arab traders who uh, asked them in Spanish, uh, ¿Qué demonios venís a hacer aquí? What the hell are you doing here? And the Portuguese replied also in Spanish, uh, Venimos por cristianos y por especias. Venimos por Dios y por especias. We come for Christians and for spices. This anecdote uh, summarizes also what is a, a small world that there are Portuguese arriving in India speaking to Arab traders. And in Spanish, they speak of a, a small world, a world that was to become smaller and this is the key point of the Portuguese presence in Asia. And this is a key point also in our codex, in the codex Casanatense. And at the same time, these uh, sentences, we come for God and for spices, it uh, summarizes the motivations what these powers came, the, the Spanish and the Portuguese, for uh, an apostolic seal and also for trading and and or to to have the the riches of asia immediately after they uh, disembark in 
in, in, in Calicut in 1598, in very few years, in a very short period, they will, the Portuguese will take uh, by force uh, the post of Ormuz, Malacca, and Goa. With these three key places, and later added by some other factories and, and ports, they were able to control the traffic in, in Ormuz, the, uh, the trade between Europe and India, but also the trade of the spices. It was like gold, was uh, of a high value uh, commodity, and it was really the, the engine of, of the world. Uh, the, the value of these uh, spices. This uh, control was n never fully effective. Uh, they tried to uh, to get a monopoly, the Portuguese, on, on this trade. This is the age of trade, as some historians has has, has uh, described this this period, like uh, Fernand Brodel. And it was never fully effective, so it was they were not powerful enough. At the same time, they the port uh, the Portuguese are different from the Dutch and the. English that will come later because the Portuguese didn't take over the sources of production uh, so that the local communities have also their own motivation and could set up their own prices and, and in this trade. The, the things will change with the Dutch and the Portuguese that really took over the, the means and the sources of production and for really devastating uh, effect for the region. So uh, this is the framework of Portuguese Asia, and, and that they call Estado da India, and with a viceroy uh, in Goa, Goa becoming the capital of the Portuguese seaborne empire. I'd, I'd add something, if, you don't, if, if I might. Um, one of the things that, one of the subtleties here is that there was a great deal of trade and con well, there was a great deal of trade and contacts between the various Asian places, of course, well before the Portuguese got there. And the Portuguese, to some extent, inserted themselves into uh, and uh, into these networks. The main source of revenue for Goa for many years was actually the horse trade, uh, which involved not anything to do with Europe at all, but trading horses from uh, Persia into the Indian subcontinent. So this was a, a trading relationship that existed that the Portuguese ended up taking over and controlling. Uh, and in fact, in the Codex, you'll see lots and lots of horses. This is what people uh, in Goa did. They were horse experts. Thank you for that context and the bigger picture in which trade and kind of Portuguese intervention are operating. And this becomes a really critical context for your second chapter because you conclude your second chapter by arguing that the patron of the CODIS was likely a casado or a former soldier married to an indigenous woman in Goa and someone who is affluent and well-connected. Can you elaborate on the social standing of the casado class and why you are attributing this CODIS to a member of it? Yes, I will uh, say that better uh, why we discard other somehow potential uh, patrons. For example, it has been suggested that the the, the college was uh, the, the patron was a, a governor, a Portuguese, uh, Portuguese uh, governor of Goa, but the the codex we don't know exactly the author, so it will be very strange that a public figure doesn't leave a testimony of uh, of such an important work because it was important in the sense that it has been preserved. Um, so the, the, it couldn't be a public figure because it lacks, this, this is a private document and also the content reveals uh, private, uh, private intentions. So not something uh, something for the private domain N nothing uh, it doesn't have an official stamp it couldn't be a governor a governor it has been suggested also that it could be uh, the the patron could be garcia de horta one of the most remarkable 
figures in uh, in Asia in the 16th century and perhaps in all in in the world at that time he was a, a botanist and he wrote one of the most important books uh, a foundation uh, foundational book of the uh, of botanics of of India and that is still relevant today. He was a uh, uh, descendant of Spanish Jews, but uh, he was born and in uh, the family forcibly converted, and he was born in Portugal, but he went to study in Spain in the universities of Salamanca and, and Alcalá at that time at, at the heights of, uh, of their prestige. He studied medicine and arts and philosophy. But García de Horta was really an intellectual, if we can say an intellectual at the time, a, scient a scientist, if we can say a scientist of, of the time. So uh, interested in recording, cataloging, describing, classifying, even, for example, the interviews that he has with other people who could provide in information on, on these plants. He distinctly uh, uh, record uh, is very meticulous in his work. So for uh, his temperament, uh, um, he wouldn't have uh, time for this kind of light-hearted codex of pictures of the scenes of, of the peoples of India and the Southeast Asia. So we could discard him as well. Some of the uh, the authors of some of the accounts that were actually not published at the, at the time, like Castañeda or Duarte Barbosa or Tomé Pires, also uh, they were not at the time that we believe that the the, the codex was written. That uh, sorry, the codex was produced. That is around 1540 in, in Goa. Could not be. The answer actually comes in the codex, and it. I, I will tell more the, the anecdote also how we came to this in our discussion, so how this could be or could not be. And because of the also the characteristics that we see in, in the Codex, it's a private document, it's unknown, there is no trace of who could be, but it has been preserved. And uh, I, I passed to... And, and also in our communications by email or by, by WhatsApp, no? and not only about our lunches, coffees, or drinks, I, I, I send uh, the, the copies of a chapter of the book uh, The Portuguese Seaboard Empire by C.R. Boxer that I mentioned at the beginning. The chapter Soldiers, Settlers, and Vagabonds. And I told Peter, it must be one of these. And Settlers means casados. Casado, married man, means uh, in our context, a former soldier married locally to a local lady, not only of India, but of the region, and who has become a settler, but mostly a settler in, in, a settler in, in the context of, of Goa would mean mainly a trader, although they, they could also fill the ranks of the administration. So the casados were the backbone of Portuguese society. And this is also in, important when we interpret or we, we try to understand the, the presence of the Portuguese in Asia is also the different interests and the different people. And the casados, for example, they could serve in the official carreras or official tradings with the uh, carracks, uh, or now the, the ships, official ships, crown sponsors ships that they were serving some trading routes. Uh, yes, they could uh, serve this trade as well, but mostly, or mainly, they were also private traders. And as such, they would have interests sometimes not in common with the crown. For example, uh, maybe the, 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 the governor or, or the crown itself, they would have... Uh, they will resort to violence, uh, for example, in the, uh, in the when it started the trading season because it, it was mainly a maritime trade that uh, maybe they will resort to blockade uh, some ports or, or, or policies of attrition of the local population. The casados will oppose 
this because it will affect the trade. And but uh, so once we we have this uh, somehow uh, this reflection uh, on 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 the context, the answer was in the codec itself. So and it, it was Peter who immediately replied to me uh, with the pictures of the codex that he uh, again was looking with with intent and where we see the pictures of abithrotho or, or marriage between a portuguese soldier with a sword and a local woman and we see that there is another picture with uh, where we see the same personage uh, in the retinue uh, a soldier in the retinue of of a uh, uh, of a fidalgo or a, a, a governor uh, in Goa. So these uh, images obviously they were made with intent. So there is an attempt at portraiture. So is they really since portraits, unlike uh, some other other pictures that look like generic uh, people. So the answer was there, and then in fact the codex half of it. Is, is really um, made of couples. Couples that they are man and women interacting with each other, pointing to each other, looking at each other uh, fondly. So this, obviously, the marriage was central. Uh, so the casado was central. And these casados not only were the backbone of, of the society in, in the Estado da India, uh, but they could be also very powerful. And they could be uh, very well connected, not only within Portuguese society, but across the ethnic divide, with uh, the local uh, local potentates or uh, neighboring rulers, and they will have a great knowledge and interest in the region. That this is what is reflected in the codex: a great uh, interest in what this this wall. So the capos, for example, the, appears the capos of Ache, Villar. Uh, China, the Abyssinians, the Santo Tomas Christians, the Arabs. So all this wall that is the Portuguese wall in in or the Portuguese connections in in Asia in the Estado of India. There's another hint in the codex. Uh, the the men in these couples very often are carrying arms. And you can see a great deal of attention in the kinds of weapons. There are normal bows and recurve bows. There are there's a flintlock musket where the uh, the actual mechanism is is shown in some detail. Uh, and the somebody involved must have known about this. And it's the sort of thing that a former soldier would have known. So there are these hints in the codex about at least the background of somebody that was in charge of the project. And so all of this kind of matches with a former soldier who married uh, a local woman. Well, and I hear both of you, especially towards the end here, talking about the illustrations in the manuscript, which is a particular subject of chapter three, where you analyze a number right. of the depictions. Um, and why the artist or author would have thought to include them. What is the image that we get of cultural contact through these illustrations? The, the illustrations uh, can be divided into two main groups. One is scenes, you know, basically daily life, uh, farmers, women collecting water, blacksmiths, money changers, goldsmiths, people in the bazaar. There are a few of women bathing. Uh, there's a curious illustration of a Portuguese group holding a dinner party in a pool in Hormuz. There are a few illustrations of religious ceremonies. Uh, there are four which have got Portuguese in them. There's a naval battle. There's a local ruler on an elephant. Uh, there's not a great deal of rhyme or reason to these. Uh, they seem to be just subjects that uh, someone found interesting uh, and illustrative. The second group, however, which are these couples, seems to be a definite project of trying to illustrate all the peoples where the Portuguese touched down uh, in the broader Indian Ocean, uh, the region covered by the Estado da India, uh, which, as I say, in turn maps onto the Maritime Silk Road. 
the the illustrations themselves show a combination of something resembling direct observation, that is, the pictures of the local professions are probably something the painter could have seen for himself, but others uh, must have been done from descriptions that somebody, and we presume the patron, provided to him. Uh, and some of the descriptions seem to be quite accurate, but others are quite inaccurate. Uh, and one of the best and somewhat more fun example of this is the uh, illustration of a Chinese couple. This was executed before the, before the Portuguese had settled in Macau. And the Chinese look more like burghers than actual Chinese. And there was a firsthand account of, of Chinese made by Tome Pires, uh, based upon Chinese in Malacca. And it, it went like this. The people of China are white, as white as we are. They're rather like Germans. They wear well-made French shoes with square toes. The women look like Spanish women. They wear pleated skirts with waistbands and little loose housecoats longer than our country. And that's exactly what this couple looks like. So what it seems to have happened is that when the painter didn't know, uh, and when whoever was advising him didn't know, he was passed a description from which to paint. Um, there are other cases where it seems that nobody really knew and any information. So the women in the Southeast Asian couples uh, are often kitted out in saris. So there are no sarongs or longis uh, in these illustrations at all. Um, there are other rather surprising little details, and one that jumped out to both Juan and me almost immediately is that the Southeast Asian men are carrying a kris, which is the archetypal Southeast Asian dagger. And you look at the hilt and pommel, and it's unmistakable what it is. And it's not an Indian weapon, but it seems clear that the painter must have seen one, because I don't think you could draw this from a description. And it turned out that the Portuguese were fascinated by, by the Chris and that they'd even sent some back to Portugal. So by looking at the paintings in the Codex, uh, you begin to get a feel of what the painter might have known and seen, what information he must have been provided by someone else, where that information came from, the routes it took some of the objects that must have traveled back and forth between different parts of Asia and Africa. Fascinating. And so because both the patron and the painter of this codice are unknown, at least in terms of their specific names, we're left to piece together who the painter was through contextual clues and who the patron was for that matter as well. And contextually, you've um, associated him with the Casado class. What is the milieu and cultural context in which the manuscript was illustrated? And what does this tell us about the painter? Until we started digging, there was very little idea where the painter might have come from, either his artistic milieu or any other sort of milieu. And this bothered us because we looked at the paintings and they look familiar. They're the kinds of things that you feel you've seen before somewhere but can't quite place. Uh, you know, they look a bit like tourist art, which is still sold in India, but there's a lot more to it than that. And then we stumbled across a reproduction of a wall mural uh, from a Jain temple in Tamil Nadu, which shows a potentate in a palaquin, you know, a sedan chair. And this very same composition appears in the codex. It's the same, um, same kind of palaquin. Uh, the people in front and at the side are the same. The numbers of people are the same. And the only difference is that the writer is a Portuguese woman. So other than the fact that the writer is different, the compositions are almost identical. This particular composition appears in more than one place in that temple uh, and appears in other temples. So it seems to be something of a template. So what seems to have happened is our painter took this template and repurposed it uh, to show a Portuguese scene rather than an Indian one. Then we looked further and we could see similarities between the codex and Jain manuscripts of the period it has to do with the way textiles are treated, uh, the way the brushstrokes are laid down, that sort of thing. 
Uh, and the other thing that was bothering us as we looked uh, through other examples of art from the period is that Indian art of the period didn't normally include many daily scenes. You, know, you don't normally find uh, paintings of farmers or people working, but one form does. And these are what are known as invitation scrolls in which a town would invite Jain religious leaders to come pass some time in the town itself. And to do this, they would paint a picture of the town. They would describe the town in pictures. Uh, and in the bazaar in the town, it would be divided up into little boxes, and each one of which would have a depiction of a certain occupation, smiths, money changers, and people weighing things. And so the exact sort of uh, same ideas and compositions that you find in the codex. So this gave us a pretty good idea of where the painter himself uh, came from. Uh, the next discovery we made that was that the painter copied from European prints as well. Uh, there was an Austrian trader by the name of Balthasar Springer that was on the 1505 Portuguese expedition to India. And when he came back, he wrote a book called De Merfat, which was filled with illustrations. In fact, about half of it was illustrations. And one of these is an Indian warrior with a round shield and raised sword. And there's exactly the same composition in the codex. Um, and there seems no doubt that the painter somehow saw a copy of the book. Uh, this particular illustration is one half of one of these couples. And this particular idea of a couple showing a people uh, and their sort of typical clothing and aspect had begun to appear in Europe in travel books and illustrations. And although the parallels aren't quite as obvious as the previous one, it would seem plausible that the painter had seen perhaps one of these prints. Uh, there's some famous ones by an artist called Hans Burkmer. Um, so we get a pretty good idea of, of who the painter was and what sort of things he must have seen in order to produce the codex. Now, this illustration of the woman in the palaquin is pretty interesting because it found its way into one of the most famous European books of the age. So I'll let Juan talk a little bit about the itinerario. Yeah, and it is uh, remarkable that the codex is big or tell us about confluences and exchanges, uh, influences, for example, and in the in the context of, of, of the paintings, not only of the different uh, systems of representations of Indian paintings before the Mughals, and the inspiration from European prints of the time, uh, but the goddess good influence one of the most important books of the times and is itinerario uh, by Lynn and one uh, Dutch uh, who was an aide of the Bishop of Goa around the year uh, the years 1580s and obviously he had access to the codex uh, whatever it might be probably in uh, within clerical circles because we know that the codex ended up in the uh, college of the Jesuits in Goa that was uh, perhaps the, the first university founded by Saint Francis Xavier. And uh, the character of Nishoten is 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 very interesting. He was highly educated, and he. Uh, took a lot of information that was confidential uh, about the Portuguese and finally uh, left Goa and went back to Amsterdam, somehow uh, changed, changed sides uh, to the Protestant side in, in the newly emerging uh, Dutch Republic. And uh, not only copy the Portuguese maps, and the first really professional or uh, accurate maps of Asia that were later to be reproduced many times in, in different sizes, in miniature sizes. So uh, this book, Itinerario by Listoten, would open uh, Asia to the European imagination. 
because the, although the Portuguese had been already almost one century, uh, the information they gathered, they never shared. And they was, was never made public. And so we have uh, evidence that Linstotten saw the codex because there are at least three pictures that they are almost identical. So that Linstotten uh, has almost reproduced these images from the codex. One is the palanquin that, as, as Peter has said, we saw uh, earlier in uh, giant temples, then in the codex, and from the codex to Linstotten, also the image of a cavalier uh, horseman, uh, probably the, the governor, and also the warships, and there are uh, pictures that they are almost identical. And so it's quite remarkable also that uh, until now, uh, no one has pointed out to these uh, um, influences. So I think uh, this uh, leader book that is perhaps uh, we are going to write also a larger book with uh, with uh, color pictures. And but this is the the first time in this in our book, painter and patron, where we point out these influences in both directions. And. You conclude your uh, study with a, with the statement, and rather than being a record of Asia filtered through a European pen, the codex is largely the opposite, a European mental map of the world filtered through the eyes of an Indian painter. This is really an interesting turn of phrase, thinking about the visual depiction of mental perceptions. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on this and how your conclusions came to this. Juan pointed out that this was really the first pictorial description uh, or, or, uh, or the first set of images that come from uh, the European penetration into Asia. You know, there had been chronicles, there had been written accounts, but this is the first one uh, that is done in pictures. But what's interesting is that the person doing the pictures is not European. The person doing the pictures uh, comes from India. Um, and his, where, he get, where he's getting his information from, where he's getting his direction from, is partly from himself, we think. You can see that he must have chosen some of these scenes himself, things that interested him. But he's also getting information uh, from his patron, the things that interest his patron, uh, the uh, uh, the the world uh, is the world of the patron. That is this uh, spread of these pictures from from East Africa all the way to China is the world of the patron, not the world uh, of the artist. Uh, and you also see the things that people didn't understand very well at the time that get recorded uh, in inaccuracies in the artwork. Um, and so you get this, as I say, picture of, of the world, which uh, is filtered through uh, the eyes and the, the paintbrush of, of an Asian rather than a European. Well, thank you so much for that. And I think we've taken up a lot of your time this evening. So I'll end with asking about what you're working on now. Can you tell us about any current or future projects? Well, I, uh, first, I, I have really enjoyed uh, talking about this because I'm very enthusiastic about it. And I, I appreciate really your questions going really to, to the, the real points. Here, now I, I'm working in, in editing uh, the proceedings of a symposium uh, that took place in Beijing, Santanago, uh, in, in the University of Foreign Languages in Beijing. And about Diego de Pantoja. Diego de Pantoja was a Spanish Jesuit that uh, came together with um, Matteo Ricci to to China, and they they were they together they two were the first Europeans to enter the Forbidden City. But uh, strangely enough, uh, there has been uh, a lot. Uh, noise about Matteo Ricci, but nobody knows Diego de Pantoja. 
And although Diego de Pantoja really engaged in um, into the Confuci Confucian, uh, the scholars, uh, the Chinese scholars, in, in his own in their own terms, no? in with their own philosophy, and and the books uh, he wrote, they were very very important. So I am uh, very I am actually learning uh, a, a lot about uh, what has been discovered, and I am uh, gladly surprised surprised that in China uh, there is now a lot of scholarship on this early presence of the Spanish and Portuguese in Asia. One of the other things I do in Hong Kong is uh, involve myself in the performing arts, opera and theater. I'm actually working on a small opera now, which uh, pandemic um, allowing we'll be doing in November. But one of the marvelous thing about these books that Juan and I work on are the stories we turn up. Um, there are all these really interesting people uh, who've got marvelous and interesting lives. They're usually not the, the kings and queens or knights. They're merchants and soldiers. And we know just enough about them to begin to be able to construct stories about them and their lives. And I think these stories are really interesting and they haven't really been written about very much uh, as stories. And uh, one of the advantages of doing this through the performing arts is you don't ha necessarily have to be historically accurate. Uh, but uh, I think there's a a lot of inspiration that can be found in all of these uh, dusty quarters of libraries. And that was why this was a really good project for me. Thank you so much. It's so fascinating to hear about the projects you're currently working on and the interrelationships between history and current art projects. And so thank you both so much for your insights into painter and patron today. And I want to thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored the intercultural world of 16th century Goa through Peter Gordon and Juan Jose Morales' fascinating Painter and Patron, The Maritime Silk Road in the Codice Casanatense, published by the Abbreviated Press in 2020. This is your host, Jenny Peruski. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.